From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason University's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Today's guest is Jacob Hall. Jacob Hall is not a building on campus. Rather, he is a first-year Ph.D. student in our esteemed department. Jacob is a student of Professor Klein, whom you'll remember from Episode 1, and is all too familiar with looseness, vagueness, and indeterminacy. One thing he doesn't like is the word conservative. Three things he does like are tennis, the Thai place in University Mall, and the New York Yankees. Um, how are you doing after that loss yesterday? Uh, uh, not too great, honestly. Not too great, yeah. Yeah, no. We're recording this on, uh, on on Columbus Day, so the Yankees are just coming off of a defeat at the hands of the Astros on a walk-off home run in extra innings. Let's not talk about it. Okay, we'll, we'll move on. Um, by the time this comes out on Friday, though, will the series be over or almost uh, over? Almost over, I think. Almost over, yeah. So maybe... Maybe you'll, uh, I'll be happier. Maybe you will. Yeah. Do you have a prediction then so you can look like a prophet when it comes Ooh, out? Of um, no, I'm not going to jinx it, man. Okay, all right. My, that's fair. Dad always taught me not to jinx it. That's fair. That's totally fair. All right. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, we're recording this on Columbus Day. I, I've got to get on my soapbox for a minute about Columbus <laughs> Day. Is that okay? Can I oh, do that? Oh, I'd love to hear it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> everybody uh, makes a big deal about Columbus Day. They make a big deal about um, the various diseases and killings of Native Americans, and those are certainly uh, disastrous. There's no question about that. Um, Native Americans have been mistreated by various groups of people at various times for hundreds of years. Uh, There's no question about that. But all of that discussion misses the point of Columbus Day, which is to be an Italian-American Heritage Day. That's what Columbus Day is actually about. Uh, Columbus Day has been celebrated for hundreds of years, but the reason it became a federal holiday in the United States... Uh, it's the second Monday in October every year. The reason that became that is because Italian-American groups uh, pressured Franklin Roosevelt really hard to make that a thing. And um, they still have the Columbus Day Parade in New York City. It's put on by Italian-American groups. Uh, it celebrates Italian-American heritage and immigration in general. Um, it's actually to celebrate the immigrant spirit of Columbus and Italian-Americans see Columbus as sort of the first Italian-American because despite the fact that he worked for Spain, he was born in Genoa, Italy. Um, his his actual name was Cristoforo Colombo, not his anglicized name that we generally use. And he was an Italian guy. And um, Italian-Americans see that as a uh, representation of, of their heritage. And that's that's what Columbus Day is all about, Charlie Brown. So can we just change the name and just, just like rock and roll? I mean, maybe. Or we could, you know, do what they do in New York City and actually educate people on what it, what it's actually about. Yeah, okay. Eh. But, yeah. So that's my, that's my soapbox about Columbus Day. I had to get that out. <laughs> um, we can move on now. So that's some history of the United States. But I want to talk now about the history of England, uh, specifically David Hume's history of England. Um, this is something you, you, know, you know a few things about this. Uh, I'm, I'm working through it. It's kind of like this really large tomes. I think it's a million words. So A million words. It's it's I know some things about it, but I'm no expert. Okay. That's a big word count. I didn't know it was all the way up there. A million words. It's six volumes. Wow. Yeah. So how many how many like pages are we talking? Maybe like three thousand? Three thirty five thousand? Wow. wow. Thir- no, thirty five hundred. Thirty five hundred, yeah, okay. 
Wow, that's a big deal. Yeah. All right. So, so, uh, so, so, why don't you tell us about Hume's history of England? Uh, what years does it cover? And what's the point of the book? And I just want to preface this: this is this is the book is called the History of England, right? Like, mm-hmm. That's just what it's called, and it's by David Hume, who is a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, contemporary of Adam Smith. Um, right, right. Who he passed away before seventeen seventy six. Yeah, so he passed away right when the Wealth of Nations came out, uh, right when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Right, great year, big big year, seventeen seventy six. Big year, maybe not a great year. We lost the sage. But okay, yeah, year. yeah, okay, well, that's fair, that's fair. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so tell us a little bit about the history of England, um, the book, The History of England, and what years does it cover, and what is the point of the book? So it covers from the Anglo-Saxons and the Romans up until the Glorious Revolution of 1688. What is the point? Being that it's a million words, there are lots of points. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of an overview like the other great six-volume um, epic, it was published out of order. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> um, so it came from what we know as the fifth and the sixth volumes were actually published first, and that's James the first to James the second. So James the first, Charles the first, the Commonwealth, Charles the second, and then James the second. Mm-hmm. And this is like kind of his. This is what he got a lot of criticism for. This is like his big, his big first move, and it's like the most popular of all of them. And then, so it's the Stuart volumes. Okay. And then three and four, the Tudor volumes, right? So that's Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, Mary, and then Queen Elizabeth. Henry the Eighth, the one with all the wives, just for our, yes. for our listeners. Yes, five? Uh, six, I believe. Six. Five, five he, he, he divorced five of them. Okay. He settled on the six. That's right, that's yeah. right, that's right. And then one and two is the Saxons up until Richard III. Okay. All right, so that's... So and that was in in that order they were released. They were in that, released in that order. Okay. So the chronology. So what is it about? Oh, just as we can speak of like Buchanan's constitutional political economy, I do think we can speak about Humean political economy. And this is kind of like the big work, kind of like fleshing his ideas out in historical narrative. So it's hard to parse exactly what he's thinking at mm-hmm. every moment, but. It is this like over, like this arc of British political economy going from the Saxons up until the the Glorious Revolution. Okay, and and would you say Hume? I mean, you sort of hinted at this, but would you say that Hume has an agenda in the way he's telling this? Is is this, or is he just is he just trying to be a a historian just to, to, just to tell the story, or is there, is, there, is there a message he's trying to get across? There's always a message you're trying to get across. Yeah, I do. You read Hume. And you can, he does want you to know, like, and think certain things. Of course, I think we all do. It's not like some high-minded, objective history, although it is, I think, dispassionate. Okay. Um, I think there's a delineation between the two. Two of the big kind of overarching things is, the first one is moderation. So, mm-hmm. in, especially in your political ideology and you know, how you think about things like moderating the public is one of his goals, not to have them go back and forth between hardcore sides. Um, and you can see that in his descriptions of kings. He encourages, or he, he gives a thumbs up to kings that were like more moderate and temperate, um, but ambitious, moderate in their ambitions. There's, it's kind of a... There, there, there's two sides, right? If we have moderation, there's lack of ambition, and there's too much ambition. Mm-hmm. So a vice, virtue, vice. Yes, so. vice, virtue, vice. Good. Mm-hmm. Was that on the last one? 
I believe it was. I believe uh, with Professor Klein, I believe we mentioned it. Okay. So there is a, a 3V framing. Yeah, 3V framing. Yeah. To everything. So, so for listeners, I'll, I'll clarify. It's, it's basically the idea. It comes from Aristotle. It's in, the, it's in the Bible to a certain extent. There's a lot of it all over the place. It's the idea that, um, that virtue is in the middle of two vices and that on either side of virtue, there's the, the vice of not doing enough of that virtue and the vice of doing too much of that virtue and that the virtue is in the middle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah. he was kind of encouraging these like political virtues in in moderation. Mm-hmm. The second one, and I think the big one, the one I'm most interested in, is this development of jural integration. And this is like something to like kind of stick, like maybe we'll talk about for a little bit. So we live in a world of jural dualism, mm-hmm. um, meaning that there are two jural relationships, and I mean by jural as in like open shows of force, things like that. Um, we have the equal equal, which is like you and I, you and our listeners, um, the people we run into the street, you know, things like that. Um, our friends, family, neighbors. And then the second is the superior inferior. Right. So we we have both of them. The dualism refers to both having both relationships. Mm-hmm. So general monism is having one relationship, mostly the first one, equal equal. I'm not sure if. We can think about it as there's only the superior inferior. I've I've heard that pitched before, but I'm not sure that makes sense. But the one I'm most interested in in the lack of jural integration is what Professor Klein and I and others are calling jural pluralism. Okay. And notice that pluralism, the quantity, is not multiple jural relationships. It's on how many jural authorities there are. So it's beyond dualism in a sense. Mm-hmm. So we have, we're accustomed to speaking of the government, mm-hmm. um, the integrated jural superior. But before, and I think it starts with Henry VII, Henry VIII, and I think that's when Hume would, might say, he might agree, that there were multiple jural authorities. And there was this jural mishmash of like all fighting against each other. Mm-hmm. So the big three in Hume is the church, the barons and then the king and volume one and two is basically these guys like threaten each other they pro they have promises towards each other and they fight and just like over and over and over again over different things mostly but they all have like the same it's it's basically the same thing they just fight and then sometimes there's a good king and he's strong enough to like put the these licentious barons down and sometimes there's not Think of John, Mm -hmm. right? So the Lord's got the better of John, but they did not get the better of his father, Henry II. Mm -hmm. And that's, we're talking Magna Carta there, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. And them getting the better of him, we could argue, was net positive for everybody else, but because we got Magna Carta out of it. Yeah, Magna Carta's interesting because it's so, hmm. Yeah, does, does Hume weigh in on Magna Carta? I think he's a. F- I don't know. He, like he does. I think in the long run, like if we were going to like look back from his position, I I think he would be positive of Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. But I see him as like very much like encouraging this jural integration and like encouraging the authority of the king, which is why he gets accused of being a Tory mm-hmm. later on in the other volumes. Yeah, I'm not sure. I do think he is positive of magna carta in the long run i mean the magna carta is weird right because it's this this event that occurs in and it's like this like convention and i think they the commons makes them 
makes the king affirm it, I think, like, 40 times. Okay, wow. Right? So he affirms it, and then he's like, nah, I crossed my fingers. And then, like, they're like, <laughs> no, do it again. And it, this goes on for, like, multiple kings. It's not just John. Uh-huh. And, so, and then it kind of, like, gains this authority, and then it just disappears, hmm. right, with King Henry, Henry VII and Henry VIII. Right? It's, they're, like, total authorities, and it's, it, I think it goes under the name of Tudor prerogative. Like, they have, like, basically all-encompassing authority. So where's Magna Carta there? Sure. And then I think like three, four hundred years later, it like pops up again. Mm-hmm. It just appears. Yeah. I mean, the weirdest thing about Magna Carta is it's is it's not the Magna Carta. Yes. Ever. Under any circumstances. It's just Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. This is... The Great Charter. Yes. It's just it's just Magna Carta. It's like, it's like Batman. Human doesn't call it Magna Carta. He calls it the Great Charter. The Great Charter. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Well, yeah, uh, um, that was sort of a thing I was wondering... Uh, in terms of, I mean, that's that's a linguistic thing, right? Using the English name instead of the Latin name, Magna Carta. Is there any tension in the book by Hume, a Scottish guy, writing a history of England? Because, I mean, we all know historically Scotland and England mm. don't get along very well. Right. Um, is there any is there any kind of tension in the book arising from, from that little conflict? Well, he did change his name. Did you know this? Really? Well, it was Home. Okay. Right. Henry Home, his cousin. Okay. Do you know? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Lord Kames. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's related to Lord Kames, also known as Henry Home, and it would be David Home, but he uh-huh. changed his name to David Hume in order to kind of like mix in with the English folk. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So so just to fill in listeners, uh, uh, Lord Kames. Um, it's not Lord Keynes, the uh, <laughs> macroeconomist. It's Lord Kames, and he. Um, he uh, he was a an influence contemporary, on, yeah, contemporary and an influence on um, Adam Smith and David Hume. Mm-hmm. He was a Scottish guy, Scottish lord up there, and the Smith's benefactor. Right? Yes, yes, I believe so. Yes, so the he influenced a lot of the Scottish Enlightenment thought, and he was a big deal. So, is there there is talk of Scottish history in the in Hume's history? Okay, um, it's mostly from the English perspective, of course. You know, know your audience. Mm-hmm. I was actually, I watched a movie last night called The Outlaw King about Robert the Bruce. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking about how, I I can't exactly remember how he, Hume painted Wallace and Robert. I think it was like fairly positive, but maybe not. It, it would have surprised me if he painted them like gloriously, because that would definitely get him into trouble. Mm-hmm. At least a little bit with his audience. It probably connects back to this moderation point. He probably, you know, wanted them to... He probably harped on the moderation of everything. But I I don't know. How would he have seen... I can't remember how he saw that. that. Hmm. Probably positive. But there are no, like, glory... There are no, like, passages where he goes, like, you know, Scotland is the best and, like, England sucks because they sure. did all this. Yeah. Know your audience. Is there anything the opposite where English is, where England is the best and Scotland sucks? I Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. so. I think okay. they... England in some sense, beat the Scots to general integration. Okay. Right, so we're in volume four. We, I think it's fair to say that we have a, a bit of general integration under Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole tension between Elizabeth and Mary, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is Mary, Queen of Scots, by the way. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth I, not the current yes, queen. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, maybe not for long. We'll see. Yeah, well, I mean, she's old enough. She probably could have been the queen back then. Yeah. I believe. I believe she was. I believe she was. Uh, she was only a little baby back then. Right. Yeah. How old is she now? 
I believe she's like 90, 92 or 93. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So there's this tension between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Elizabeth I. And Mary has, like, serious problems with her barons. Mm-hmm. Right? They get in her way mm-hmm. where, like, England is in some sense unified. And I think the whole point of 2, 3, and 4, volume 2, 3, and 4, is this, that this journal integration is good and should be encouraged. So there is that. Okay. Like, there's this subtle, like, these people are backwards. Sure. Barbarous is okay. the word. Barbarous, yeah. Yeah, how much does he make of the contrast between civilization and barbarism? Because, uh, and, and does he see does he see history, the history of England anyway, as sort of a, a progression away from barbarism and into some kind of higher civilization? Mm-hmm. Civilization and barbarism are not, to him, they're not socioeconomic. I think maybe some of us think this way. Is mm. that, I don't know if you attach that, connotation to it but it's not socioeconomic it's really about like political organization and there is like this underlying theme where general pluralism is like kind of barbaric and not what's the word uh, is irregular Mm -hmm. so yeah he did there is this distinction it's not he doesn't he does kind of like harp on it sometimes and it kind of but it is like this this overarching theme that's like kind of in everything. Once we're once he's talking about general pluralism, which is mostly one through three in my mind, there is yeah, there's a there's a tension between the two, and he encourages civilization like you know we all should. Sure. Yeah. Unlike the other uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau. Yeah. Okay. So he doesn't see this. Uh, he doesn't see this glorious state of nature. No. Not at all. No. Not at all. Yeah. So he that, also- that's something that we're used to thinking about. I think because. You know, in high school, we're taught about Rousseau, and we're taught about Locke, and we're taught about the state mm-hmm. of nature and how we escape from the state of nature and that sort of thing. And how um, and, and Rousseau has these very romantic, very nice notions of the state of nature being this wonderful thing. But Hume, I, it's fair to say, I think that Hume doesn't even he doesn't even see the world that way at all. No, right? Like he doesn't even see the state of nature as being like a a good starting point Ooh, for no. history. No. Yeah. It's it's Juror pluralism is authority and anarchy. Mm-hmm. So we have multiple competing authorities all vying for power. It's not authority and liberty where we're all just like, okay, we all get along. No, it's 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 anarchy. People might not like the use of that word, but that's what it is. Yeah, sure, sure. Although I do want to take a shot at your friend Edmund Burke. Um, <laughs> although I, I'll, I'll come around to explaining okay. my fuller thoughts on this. All right, Hume is. One of his main goals is to smash the Whig theory of history. Are you, are you, do you know what that is? Like Whiggish, Whiggish history? Whiggish history, yeah. but also the myth of the ancient constitution. Okay. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no. So, okay. English liberty and English institutions goes all the way back to the Anglo-Saxons, right? And so deviations from that are like the Tudors or the Stuarts are deviations from the ancient constitution. So back with the Anglo-Saxons, it was kind of this land of liberty, right? And with good authority, Hume is like, no, that's so clearly not true. It's it's authority and anarchy. There's multiple competing authorities. Volume one, it, the early part of volume one is pretty much, okay, there's a king, and then he gets killed, and then there's another king, and he gets killed, and then there's another king, and he gets killed. Like it's just it's so <laughs> it's so clear that it's like this myth that the Whigs kind of like purported in order to like bolster their cause. And Burke does this to a certain extent in his reflections. 
Now, I do think there is something to be said about the myth of this, like building the myth, kind of like the myth that we build as Americans about our founding fathers and about the Supreme Court, like these all high intelligent, nine intelligent people with robes. It's very like priestly in some sense. Mm. There's a there's a purpose to the myth, but it is a myth, and Hume wants to smash it. Okay, which is why they call him a Tory. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and the idea of Whiggish history, though, is the idea that history is on this inevitable path towards liberty. Right. Which I don't see Burke as supporting either. Yeah, okay. So, I, yeah, I did... That's right. So there are, I guess, two two myths uh, associated with Whigs and history. Okay, yeah. The ancient constitution and Whiggish history. Sure, sure. Um, and, and, so, um, and so you'd say that that's not... I mean, th- that's not even true. And why? Wh- what's Hume's motivation for pushing back against that? What does, he, what does he want you to believe instead? So he gets a lot of pushback from volume, what we call volume five and six, the steward volumes, for kind of supporting them in some sense, which as Americans who love liberty, we kind of go, what? What do you, okay? Sure. But it is about this, like, this stability of the polity. And so he, in his studies, he goes back to the Tudors and goes, the Tudors did this. The Stuarts were just following their example. Um, So the question is, what's the difference between Tudor prerogative and Stuart authority? Well, there really isn't one. And then going further back, because he wants to like show this like increasing general integration that makes England so great. And better than other places. Better than Germany, which I don't think was fully integrated until 1871. Yes, correct. Um, better than France, which always has its problems. It, yeah, it's to show this inter- this increasing integration and not to go, oh, you remember how great it was with the Anglo-Saxons? They had their liberty. It's like, no, they didn't. They didn't have liberty. That's wrong. Like, don't talk that way. Maybe it's it's a myth, but don't let's not encourage this thought. And so he wants you to see it as sort of that this that, that creating this stable government, creating this dural integration is expensive. Like yeah. it, it took a lot of effort and a lot yeah. of work to do. It was yeah. there was nothing inevitable about it. There was nothing about it that was fits and starts. Yeah, and, and there's it, no one guy. Yeah, yeah, and there was no one guy. It was just and 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 after years and years of working at it, we've sort of arrived at this thing now. And so that that encourages that encourages to a certain extent to be to be grateful for that and also to to be vigilant about it because mm-hmm. you, when you realize that it's not inevitable when you realize that it's not the inevitable journey of history to get to that point of a, a stable government um, that makes you a little bit more uh, grateful and conscious of what that is that and it reminds us that we can't just get all the smart guys, you know, all the political economists, political philosophers, and craft a constitution and a government. Even the American founders are very much influenced by Britain. Mm. It, it's wrong to say that they just all got in a room and we like all high-minded rationalism and we just craft, you know, the perfect government. No, it's like this product of history that our own thoughts and our own feelings and sentiments is this product of this long chain of history. So I feel like we've, we've covered good ground here on political organization, on history. What does this have to do with economics? Where is this related to? 
Where is this related to economics? Where is this related to how we uh, how we should think about um, you know political economy today, stuff like mm-hmm. that? So there is the there's the Thomas Schelling connection, which is volume two and three. No, volume one, two, and three are all, are all about threats, promises, commitment, warnings. Um, you might want to explain Thomas Schelling a little bit. Oh yeah, so Thomas Schelling is this great game theorist, non mathematical game theorist. Um, who has four great books, in my opinion, Strategy of Conflict, Micromotives and Macro Behavior, what's the other one, Arms and Influence, and then Choice and Consequence, right? Strategy of Conflict is the one you should read first. I highly recommend it. Um, we could talk about that later, though. I have an idea on this. And he kind of is like, a, in the height of the Cold War, he's like kind of looking into threats and promises and how we can credibly commit the two. Mm-hmm. And, and he was a, he was an advisor to presidents and stuff, right? Yes, he was. Yeah, before it was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, Hume is like really like a proto game theorist in some sense. That's not a new idea. That's, I think, Andrew Sobel pit, pitches that fairly convincingly in my mind. And it's all about this: how do these competing authorities interact with each other? Why does this have to do with economics? So the Nobel Prize was just announced today. Um, yeah. Benergy and Deflow and Michael Kramer mm-hmm. on their work on randomized control trials and, on, in development econ. Yeah, it was something about experimental. It was like it was like experimental development econ. Yeah, yeah. So in underdeveloped countries, we might often see the lack of journal integration. Think maybe Venezuela. I think parts of Venezuela are basically run by like gangs and the mafia. Mm-hmm. Um, African countries, which is has like this loose connection between the official government and like warlords. Mm-hmm. So we can take what we learned from Hume in England and maybe apply it to other places. And think about general pluralism not just as the historical question, which I'm interested in, but also as a development econ question. Mm-hmm. How do these multiple authorities interact with each other and how can we get from this place of general pluralism to general dualism? How can we encourage it? How does how does that process how is that process facilitated? And that's connected to North Wallace and Weingast's work, um, violence and social orders. But also Darren Asiamoglu, um, Doug North, as I just said, um, all these guys are kind of like thinking through oh, our own Johnson and Koyama mm-hmm. are like thinking through these questions. So it's the sort of the idea of, um, you know, we got to change the institutions if we want to get the results we want. Right. As opposed to, you know, there's only so much that giving people stuff can do. Right. Um, and, and, and the idea... And who, I, who are we going to give this stuff to? Exactly. The warlords? Well, yeah. hopefully not. Yeah. And I, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's good that we have this in the history of England, right? Because we think of England now as like, oh, yeah, they're a developed country. They're doing great. But, like, mm-hmm. they were not always this way. No. It was not inevitable at any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, they got there earlier than most countries did. but Maybe because they're an island. All right, let's let's, <laughs> let's go, go down this. Let's go island thesis. All right, I love so, it. So so there's this idea out there um, that that you can explain a lot of English history by the fact that or British history, I should say, by the fact that they're an island and that they're not connected to um, the rest of continental Europe. So they don't have to deal with a lot of stuff. They have a great built-in defense system called the English Channel. The moat. <laughs> yeah, big old big old stretch of water 
um, that can keep out the French, keep out invaders, anybody like that, mm-hmm. and um, and that this helped them to be stable, and this helped them to industrialize and help them to do all these other things. Well, so what do you what do you make what do you make of that idea? Oh, I'm a big fan of the English Triangle thesis. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, there's a coevolution between English institutions and English culture. I think, and I think the island thesis, in some sense, explains both, or in, to a certain extent, explains both. It's like multi-causal, multi-factors. Connected to the institutional questions and more on the cultural ones, why do we have all of these English philosophers also doing political economy? Right? It's because well, they're they have a stable enough polity. And they can they have to kind of these think of these questions like okay how how are we going to change policy like what are we going to do they're not unlike the French and the Germans who are always worried about like invasion or like border changes on the margin they don't they have a stable enough they have an island that they can like really rely on they have this island <laughs> that is stable for them and in order to take the island you have to like take the entire thing. So so that's so that's this idea that they that they have this like security that they can that they can get behind. Right. But the the thing that's interesting to me though, and this is something um I learned about, you know, geographical explanations of these things from um Professor Koyama in his mm-hmm. economic history class, is that, you know, geography's the same no matter what. I mean England was an island when it was a backwards right. country under the Anglo-Saxons right. too. That's the question. So so how can a how can a static thing like that explain a change? Change. I don't know, you setting me up for an answer? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I that's just, a good question. Yeah. It probably it, is it so that's static, but it facilitates certain things that the French and the Germans don't have because they have a different static in some sense. The island is a static, but it, on the French, on the continent, their territory isn't a static. It's always, I mean, the, the geography is a static in some sense, but their territory is not one. Mm-hmm. It's changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So are we just looking at the wrong variable? I mean, maybe. I don't know. It's just the idea that, you know, just the idea that it's always an island. So, like, if the island explained it, if, the, if, they're, if them being an island explained them becoming stable... Why didn't they become stable? Like, why weren't they always stable? Yeah. Well, it's multi-causal. Yeah, It's sure. one of the many things that explains England. So do you think it? Do you think that that, w- that helped them? Because in, in some respect, they were first in this, right? Yeah. Were they first? Was it, is it fair to say they were first in Europe? Anyway? I think it's fair to say that they're first. Okay. So so maybe it was maybe it was not so much that it allowed them to do that, but it allowed them to do it faster. Right. Because they don't have to worry about other people. Sure. When they have to worry about other people, less so on the margin. Mm-hmm. Probably the more accurate statement. Yes. But think about Japan. Japan is like, are they the English of the East? To a certain extent. Okay. Yeah. What about New Zealand? Sure. Are they? How are they? Well, I'm just like, if we're going to like open it up, thinking about islands, islands are like kind of unique. England, Japan, New Zealand, Cuba. But, but I can also offer like the Caribbean. Right. Where they're not stable right. at all. Mm. So it's not about islands. I think it's about... I don't know. This is like an interesting topic. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. It It's not about islands in, in and of itself. It's about the English island. Okay. Which is why it's the English island thesis. 
not the island thesis. Okay. Because the island thesis kind of falls apart pretty quickly, right? Yeah. It's not right. The English the English have liberty because they're an island. Well, what about Cuba? Mm-hmm. They're not. They're an island. Yeah. They didn't have liberty. They exactly. still don't have liberty. Yeah. I mean, in places like you know Haiti, Dominican Republic, they're yeah. still not stable today. Right. I mean, yeah. So there is, but there is this. It is one, maybe one piece in the entire thing that, but it's not the only thing, for sure. Okay. And what does Hume? How, when? Where does Hume mention? I think Hume's a fan of the English island. Theory. You think Hume? Yeah. Likes he, it? Okay. I think he does. He mentions it multiple. He mentions the fact that they're an island multiple times, mm-hmm. and it's usually about the security point that you brought up. Okay. Because they're secure, they can kind of like do their own thing, and worry about other things. Mm. And they don't have to worry about, um, and to a certain extent, by by their land being limited mm-hmm. by the ocean right yeah <laughs> in the north sea you know they don't have these temptations of expansionism whereas like the king of france well expansionism the, the expansionism comes at a higher cost the sure. english empire yeah but that they was after have... that's after hume's that's after hume's writing. okay well yeah sure yeah, yeah so so like but like when you know at, at the same time when 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 you know french kings running around trying to, you know, invade Alsace-Lorraine and take over right. more French territory, you know, at that point because in time. Because it's just right there. Exactly. we can take it. And it's just so easy, right? Yeah. And those and those Germans aren't going to stop us, right? No. We can just go take it from them. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the English where they're like, yeah, we've got this island. And like, and so we worry about other things. Yeah, and, and, they, and they were able to, um, and they were able to be in union with the Welsh, very right. early on. So maybe when general integration finally kicks in, maybe that's when the English island thesis is, like, the most important. Sure. So the the fact that they're an island mitigates the problem of general pluralism because you don't have, like, barons, like, taking over other parts, other countries. You don't have to deal with these people. But once they're generally integrated, being an island is a nice feature. Mm-hmm. And and how much of the, how much of general integration do you think is the integration of the nations that are on the island? So that's Wales and Scotland. How much of the how much of the jural integration goes along with the union between first between England and Wales and then next between England and Scotland? I don't know. I don't. When I think of jural integration, it's mostly the development of the nation state. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's perfectly seems fine to me that there are, we could think of three nation states on the island, but the fact that it's an island suggests that there will be one or one. Or three very connected. So, yeah, not much. Okay. There's probably a connection there, but I'm not sure what right. thinking about. Sure. Uh, we'll go back to Hume's Hume's book now. Um, how does Hume... You, you talked about this a little bit, but how does Hume structure the book? Um, you sort of mentioned... Uh, like, like what, is he, what does he focus on in the terms of how he tells his narrative? Is he focusing on, you know, this guy's the king... Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about things that happened while he was the king, or is he talking about this is what it was? This is what life was like for oh, yeah. the commoners. Oh, it's totally not at, at all okay. like that. Okay, it, the commoners don't come up at all. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, it's organized by monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, the first two are the first three have multiple monarchs. Four is a self-contained volume on Elizabeth. Five and six is multiple monarchs. The first two are every chapter is a monarch, 
And so when he devotes two chapters to a monarch, you know, it's kind of a big deal. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, it's about this relationship between the monarch, the barons, and the church. Which which monarchs get two chapters? Henry the Henry the first, Henry the second, and I think that's it. That's it. Yeah. Wow. They're so big guys. Henry the second is a real. He's like a real he's a heavy good hitter. king. He's yeah, a he's a heavy hitter. He's a heavy hitter. His sons kind of suck. Okay. Kind of the roll of the dice. Doesn't that always happen? It always happens. It always happens that way. It's really it's really crazy, isn't it? I I think it's um. His father kind of sucked, Stephen. Okay. Stephen's anarchy. Sure. Right. His grandfather, Henry the first, did not suck. Uh huh. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like calling them two chapter monarchs. I think that's like that's a that's, good. That's how we should. That's how we yeah, should refer chapter, to them. Two chapter monarchs. Yeah, the two chapter monarchs. But it's all deal. about this. These the heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. It's not about day to day stuff. Like what does the English peasant do? You mm-hmm. know, when near one thousand. No, that's not what it's about. Okay. The the commoners. The masses, maybe we should say, to not confuse the commons. The masses, they come up every now and again they win, when they rebel and cause trouble. Okay. <laughs> but not not the day-to-day. It's not this, like, history that we think of now where it's – we're talking about the economic questions. Like, okay, what did, what does the day-to-day stuff look like? What What's GDP in this year? No, that's, like, not – it's a book about politics okay. in some sense. Interesting. So, so you just – it's. Is that I mean that that is that just typical of of the time he's writing in that people didn't really care about that or is it or is it that Hume himself really doesn't care about that? <laughs> Maybe it's both. I've yeah. heard him called the Tactitus. Is that the right way to pronounce it? I've never actually pronounced the word. His name, the German historian, the ancient historian, Tactitus, Tacitus. Okay, sure. Yeah, we'll edit this out. Sounds good. <laughs> we'll, we'll look it up. Um, I can't believe you don't know who he is. You know who Thucydides is, though? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Thucydides is the historian of, like, a war or of, like, a certain time period. The Peloponnesian War. Yes. Tactitus, I really hope I'm getting this right, is this longer history, the history of England, the history of of Germania. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's this long – the fact that it is this longer work focused on big trends and forces – he does not get into the little nitty-gritty. Although he does actually sometimes when he talks about what he kind of backs up and thinks about the monarch's reign, you do see him get into the nitty-gritty. Like corn yields were like this and these were the <laughs> prices of corn. And it's like the last chapter or it's like the last paragraph of the chapter. So he's just like, yeah, this is like what it was like. Okay. He doesn't seem to care. Sure. <laughs> so he's just kind of throwing it in there just to be like, hey. Yeah. Although he does – the end – uh, the ends of the monarch's chapters are always these character witnesses, which okay. is very cool. You get to see how Hume thinks about his, his subject in some sense. Kind of like back on your talk with Professor Klein, it's like putting things in the bag. Mm-hmm. And this, these stories mm-hmm. that that Smith tells in TMS, there's an analog to these character witnesses in Hume's History of England. You always see his opinion. His opinion comes out for sure. sure. Either through his voice or through someone else's voice. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, the the one thing that people know about Hume, if they've heard of him, they just heard of him in high school, AP, yeah. AP Euro or something, is that he was skeptical of religion. Yeah. Right. He's a I philosopher. Mean, this is the thing we know about him. He was the guy who was skeptical of religion. If you know one thing about Hume, that's what it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, while that's certainly true, uh, I feel like that sells him a bit short. 
Totally. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? On his, the entirety of his work, or on his skepticism of religion? No, on on, on does that does that being the one thing that we know about him does that? Oh, sell it's super him lame. Yeah, yeah, it's super lame. Uh-huh. There's this, except historians, to a certain extent, and I, I don't know economists, political economists don't talk about it that I've seen. Although every now and then, you know, we talk about everything. Yeah, no, Hume is a philosopher. Right, and he all in in some people's mind, he only wrote the treatise. Mm-hmm. He didn't have all these other writings. So, can you talk about They're the like, treatise a little bit. So the treatise is like his magnum opus, I guess, in some sense that I he that he disavowed in some sense. Okay, yeah. Although you know, disavow be damned. You know, people think it's great. I think it is great. There are chapters of it that are worth reading, and it's a worth reading. Um, look, I think he wrote it when he was like very young. Mm-hmm. Like, if not our age, like very close to our age, 25, mm-hmm. 27. Sure. And he viewed it as like this sophomoric thing and he went back and like did philosophical writings later. It's very, I can't read it. It's very difficult to read it in contrast to Hume's history where I think he made a conscious effort to make it readable. Mm-hmm. Despite making it a million words. To my, despite making it a million <laughs> words. Yeah. So, so yeah, so. So I guess if there's one thing people take away from this, well, I'm going to take away that Hume is more than this guy who's just like... A philosopher. Agnostic well, he, or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that's just like the only no, thing I people think know a lot about of people think of him as an atheist. Sure. Not just as an agnostic. Yeah. An atheist but, Tory, God forbid. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So so, uh, so uh, talking about the Whigs and the Tories, you know, the Whigs are always seen yeah, wait, as... Wait, hold on. How do people square that? I mean, they probably just didn't like the guy. Yeah, probably well, he didn't like, have a position. He was, like, totally unable to get a, a position at a university. Oh, interesting. You didn't know this? No, I didn't. Oh, he was, like, not... People were not a fan of his. Hmm. Was Atheist he, was he like, was he, like, personally, like... <laughs> no, I think he was a great guy, was from he what like, I've understood. So, from, like, his, like, like correspondence a guy you have and a stuff, with. is he, like, yeah, he's, like, a nice he's guy? He's a very jovial, nice guy. Hmm. I feel like it would be like a sort of a personality thing where the people then like backfill, like come up with insults for him because they just oh don't they like did him. they did yeah I think right. con- like Smith was a great guy I think but he also lived by himself he lived by himself and it's kind of kind of part of his character yeah I think Hume was kind of like more of an outgoing guy yeah well uh, I mentioned before that you're a first year PhD student I am you're a, you're 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 just beginning your journey yes in our esteemed department yes um. Is this the kind of stuff you focus on in your research, or in your, is, that, is this what you want to be like? This is what I want to do. Yeah, this is kind of like, I want to do this general pluralism stuff mm-hmm. on this arbitrage opportunity between um, this Smithian political economy, Hume, Smith, Grotius, Pufendorf. I'm just naming names for people. Uh-huh. Um, this is how you learn. You just hear people say things. You go, who's that? Yeah. And kind of like this modern new institutionalism. Okay. Sure. Yeah, and uh, we we say Grotius on this podcast. No, oh, did I say Grotius? No, no, you said oh, I said Grotius. You said Grotius. Okay, okay, it was good. It was, it was good. Yeah, but we we say Grotius on this podcast. Worth reading. Um, yeah, especially the because he's got a book on on pirates. Yes, the was it the uh, the law of prize and booty? Yeah, the law of prize and booty. Yeah, that's a that's an April. Remember that title. I have a comment at the end that we might. Uh... Well, just get it out now. Okay, so I'm thinking about doing this reading group in the summer for anyone that's interested. Okay, kind of like we did last year. Um, although I don't want to, I don't know what we're going to read. I have no clue. I do want to read something just to, you know, keep it up. And I'm kind of like taking suggestions. 
Okay. So, the law of prize and booty is one of them that I'm like totally willing to do. Yeah. I'm do, I'm willing to do more modern stuff if people want to do more modern stuff. Okay. People want to just do papers. I'm willing to just do papers. But if anyone has any ideas, I'm totally like up for hearing it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. What, we'll see what goes on with that. Um. So, so this is the kind of stuff you want to focus on with your research. This kind of political economy, institutions mm-hmm. stuff. Um. Uh, and, um, and, and, and you think there's a lot of, you think there's a lot to, a lot to do with that, right? I mean, there's, the, well, if I didn't, would I want to do it? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. No, it's, sometimes it's, you, sometimes you want to go where other people have gone before. Right. You know, and well, like, there, but. there's arbitrage opportunities. So okay. there's where people have gone before and then there's like your new little spin on things. Sure. I haven't seen people talking about what we're calling general pluralism in, New institutional econ. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it comes up. Maybe it comes up more in history, mm-hmm. but it is worth looking into and thinking about. Why is England one of the first to journal integration? Mm-hmm. Right. And this is not just about increased state capacity. It's like the development of the state. I'm sure, sure it's been talked about. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff on that, but it's like worth looking into. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty good. So how is... How's it going so far? It's going well. With your um, we just We just did our uh, our micro final and our econ math final. Uh-huh. Um, macro is coming up on the 28th. Kind of like, that's like really the, the class that affords the most focus, right? Micro is great. It's Walter Williams. Yeah. So it's kind of, a, it's fun. Econ math, it's a math class. So <laughs> like any other math class you've taken. Uh-huh. Um, but macro is like the real learning curve. Mm-hmm. So that's coming up. It's going well. Um, I enjoy it. I kind of like maybe more so than our other friends at GMU like macro models. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they're quote unquote true or not, they're useful mm-hmm. and they're kind of fun to play with. Okay, so mm-hmm. you're so you're into the you're into the witchcraft. Yeah, well, saying. I'm into. The, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of obsessed at the moment on it, which is good, I guess. Uh-huh. Oh, it's better than being bored. It is better than being bored. Take that any um, day. So, uh, but I'm not a macroeconomist, but and I don't intend to pursue that, so I'm not that into it. But it is fun. Okay, it's so cool to think about growth. That's pretty much what we're doing right now is growth. Okay, interesting. Which is related to what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Yeah, because you can't have industrial, you know, industrialization without general integration to a certain point. I, mean, I that, would agree with that. Do you think that plays a big part? I think so. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And that the fact that the English were kind of the the first ones onto this kind of. Mm-hmm. I'm sure played a mm-hmm. role in that development. Oh yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. Kind of the state, the, the idea of the stable polity. Without a stable polity, you don't have mm. a stable economy. You don't have growth. The ability to refer to the government, right, is and, key, and have and, and it's kind of it's a game theory thing there too. It's like a common knowledge thing, right? It's like it's like I say the government, and you know what I mean by the government, mm-hmm. and I know that you know what I mean mm-hmm. by the government. So we can parse out questions of community of justice and liberty. Yeah, so we can get... So so the fact that we have that defined and that's common knowledge among all the people and all the people know that all the other people know that and so on and so on and so on and infinitum, um, that is that makes a really big deal for being able to figure out these other problems because we're confident we know what we're talking about as opposed to places that are still developing they don't have that confidence, right? You know, you, you can't say mm-hmm. the government in mm-hmm. a developing Who's country. doing the policy reforms? How are the other actors responding to these policy reforms? These questions, like, 
okay, how do we are we how do we all get along where we can make things kind of work? Are we going to threaten or promise? How do we threaten or promise? What does all this look like mm-hmm. in the world of general pluralism? How did okay. the church interact with the barons to like make things at least marginally less bloody? Sure. Because right? that's what we want, marginally less bloody yes. in this time. Yes, of course. So if there's one thing you could tell undergraduates who want to get a PhD, yeah. what would it be? In econ? Yeah. The one piece of advice that I got was do as much math as you can stomach, mm-hmm. which I think is is a um, is good advice. You mm-hmm. should do as much math as you can stomach. But you should also really love econ. Mm-hmm. I think if you're kind of wavering, you're like, I kind of like econ, but I'm not really sure, don't do a PhD. Mm-hmm. You're not going to... You're not going to enjoy it. You really want like want to live, breathe, and sleep the economics, <laughs> uh-huh. which is what which is what I do, um, which is what other friends of the show do. <laughs> but um, you you don't do that. But you're not doing a PhD <laughs> in economics. Um, and that's good because people who live, breathe, and th- think economics are weird. <laughs> Self proclaimed. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty weird too. But that's okay. In a different way, though. <laughs> um, yeah, do as much math as you can stomach and. Read widely, like kind of like want to try to figure out what you want to do, even though the first year is like all core classwork, you're not going to be doing research, but having these questions that you're interested in helps you like get through it. Mm -hmm. And that you can also like make connections. So we're doing growth in macro. And so like in some sense, I like to, I think a lot about growth in, in this general pluralist connection. So that kind of thinking about these things is helpful. Mm-hmm. Although they're all these models are based on the government, sure. What does this mean? What is what is? <laughs> I don't even know how we would model like this stuff with like multiple authorities. Yeah, that'd be wild. Yeah, it wouldn't be. Yeah, but yeah, do as much math as you can, and read widely. All right, find and, something interesting. In. And if there's one thing you could tell undergraduates who don't want to get a PhD, what would it be? Hmm. If you don't want to get a PhD and you're still interested in econ, again, read widely. Mm-hmm. Um. You don't have to have a PhD to convince people and, like, make a difference. And I'm not just thinking of making a difference on Capitol Hill. I mean, like, with your family and your friends. I think that's, like, where it all starts. Mm-hmm. I I don't buy into this whole idea that if we want to change the world, we have to, like, run to, like, the government or, like, run to these big organizations. I think if you just interact with your family and, you like, do things on the margin then you'll change the world on the margin. Mm-hmm. And that's like all you really can do. Sure. And that's definitely a good place to be. Yeah. Um, read so TMS. Read The Theory of Moral Sentiments. The Theory of and, Moral Sentiments. And listen to the first episode of yes. Louis Fagan and Determinate, um, where you can hear about TMS from Professor Dan Klein. Um, and so one last thing. Mm-hmm. Just any cool stuff that you've learned so far in the PhD program? Like any like one thing that you like heard it in class and you're like, wow, that was really cool. Hmm. Well, we did just end talking about Michael Kramer's paper, who just won the Nobel Prize today. So oh, we okay. were just kind of like learning all of that. We were learning that stuff, which is cool. Okay. Um. And what's that about? Oh, man, I don't remember. I have to like blank that out. <laughs> it's not on the test. That's really all that's important at the moment. Um. <laughs> Okay, so here's an interesting one. It, this is like on your previous question. In development econ and in macro, the last thing that you learn is usually solo. Okay. Right? That was the first thing that we did. 
Okay. Yeah. And then we did um, RCK. Here, Okay, here's the interesting fact. The Ramsey Cass Koopman's model, right, is an exogenous growth model that is based on solo, but it has some micro foundations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ramsey, the, one of the main guys, died at the age of 25. Wow. Yeah. I'm 22. Yeah. Okay. Makes me feel like a total loser <laughs> when I study this thing. Uh-huh. And I wonder why he died. And I'm pretty sure his model killed him. Really? Pretty sure. It's not fun. It's the hardest one we have. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's, 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 they're fun to learn. I enjoy it. Okay. And what's the, what's the like selling point of it? Of the model? Yeah. What makes it better than Solo? Than Solo? It endogenizes savings. Okay. Yeah, so it has micro foundations and it endogenizes savings. Because in Solo, for our development fans out here, Solo is... Um, There's a couple. They're out there. Yeah. Yep. Solo has... It's, it's a totally exogenous model. And at the end of the day, the growth rate is determined by technological growth or knowledge growth, G. Which is like super lame. Because, <laughs> the, how, okay, why, why do we have growth? Well, because, you know, knowledge and technology grows. It doesn't tell me anything. The end of the model is not very satisfying. I I think the shocks that you can subject the model to and see how things change is kind of satisfying. It's kind of cool. RCK allows you to endogenize the savings rate, but at the end of the day, it's still determined by G. So, like, it still results in the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, growth is super weird. We, like, don't understand it. Yeah. And, like, anyone that tells you that we do understand it is, like, kind of lying. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's, like, one of these, like, profound questions we, we've been asking since Smith and Hume. For sure. That's a good way we've to end it. We've gone down many alleys. That's a good way to end it, I think, that we've we've been asking these questions since Smith and Hume. And we still don't know the answer. And we still don't know the answer. We but, have glimmers. Uh, but yeah, but we have, we have little bits of it, and we can keep learning more. So uh, thank you so much for being here, Jacob. Really yeah, appreciate it. thanks for it. the invite. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University in conjunction with the wonderful folks at WGMU. Special thanks to General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.